Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. This is the word of the Lord. Let him who has ears to hear, hear the word. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. Father, we recognize your word as truth. We recognize the voice of our shepherd. We pray that you would lead us this morning. Guide us, Lord, into all your truth. Help us to see the the beauty, the glory of God on display in your salvation, your redemption of us sinners who are now by your grace saints. Lord, thank you for this gathering of saints. Thank you for your people in whom you dwell and in whom you are working out your great salvation. I pray that you would work it out this morning for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've been working through um, a challenging, I would say, section of Scripture, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. And last week we were looking particularly at this postscript, this PS that Paul puts to, uh, to the Romans. And he says, moreover, by the way, I haven't forgotten about the law. We've been talking about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he, Paul, being himself an ethnic Jew and understanding the mind of the Jews, was anticipating um, an objection. And the objection was, well, Paul, what about the law? What about Moses? I mean, that is a key part of what it means to be Jewish. It sounds like you're just setting the law aside. And Paul wants to reassure his readers and all of us that the law has not been set aside. In fact, it plays a very specific function, a God-intended function. And that function is to show us our sin. The law entered that the offense, sin, in our lives might abound. And we saw that that really means an amplification to help us to see ourselves the way that God sees us. And we saw that that law amplifies sin not just to drive us to despair, but that grace might superabound. That though we are trapped by the law, and we feel that there is no escape, the Lord provides a Savior, a Deliverer, a door through which we can walk where salvation is offered full and free. One who paid the price for our sin. One who fulfilled the law in its entirety. Who did so for us in our place. That is the purpose of the law. It is ultimately for God's elect to bring them to Christ. To bring them down low in order that he might exalt them and seat them in the heavenlies with Christ. But we kind of stopped mid-thought last time. Because this verse 20 doesn't stop at verse 20 but continues into verse 21. 
Paul says in verse 21, so that. So we understand that Paul is going to illustrate or explain what he's just said in verse 20, in verse 21. And so I'd like to look at that with you this morning. In verse 21, he wants to set another contrast before us to illustrate what this superabounding grace looks like. Now you remember in verses 12 through 19 that the fundamental contrast that Paul has put forth is between Adam and Christ as the heads of two humanities, both representatives of a humanity. Adam, the representative of all mankind, the natural born, those who are born of this earth. And Christ, the representative of all the new humanity, those who have been reborn from above in heaven. And what we saw is that Adam's disobedience brought judgment, in fact, a judgment of condemnation and death to all who are in Adam. And that is why we are born sinners. We were constituted, declared sinners at the time when Adam sinned because we were in Adam, in a sense, as our original father, even though we were not yet born. And when he polluted the well, so to speak, all of us were polluted at that time. We died in him. But then we see the good news that Christ is the other head and he has an obedience that far exceeds the curse that Adam put on us. His obedience brings righteousness and justification and abundant life to all of us who have faith in him, who have trusted in him alone, whose souls have come to rest in him alone and no longer in our own works. Amen? And so... This contrast has been between Adam and Christ, but here Paul wants to call our attention in this postscript to the comparison of sin and grace. Sin and grace. And he does so, you'll note, with the same construction that he used in verses 12 and 18, which was a just as, even so. Like in verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world... Down in verse 18, he completes that thought and he says, Even so, through one man's righteousness, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So Paul uses that same construction here in verse 21, where he says, uh, So that, as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, What is true in the first place, that Adam's offense, his sin, truly caused death to reign upon all of us. It is just as true and much more true that the righteousness, the obedience of Christ, brings us righteousness from God and justification and life in him. Now, we have to understand, first of all, in this contrast, what our starting position is. What is our starting position in Adam? It is this, sin reigned in death, so that as sin reigned in death. Sin, brothers and sisters, is not a person, but it's interesting. You'll note that Paul personifies sin here really as a tyrant, as a a cruel, oppressive ruler. We have, in our study of sin in this passage, referenced Uh, Dr. Grudem's definition, which I think is a very good one for sin. He says that sin is, quote, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Act, attitude, or nature. 
And I think the reason why Paul is personifying sin here in Romans 5.21 has to do with the nature of sin. Sin has a nature. In fact, we saw that back in verse 12. Just as through one man sin entered the world. He's not talking about Adam's particular offense in verse 12 there. He's talking about a nature of sin that has entered into the realm of mankind and has been passed to all of us, where we are born with that nature as sinners. And that is the reason why we sin. In other words, you could think of it this way. We're born as a bad tree, and that's why we make bad fruit. So sin is personified here as one who reigns. And we saw in our discussion of reigning that that really means dominion. That means a kingdom. That means one who exercises absolute authority like a monarch would. An evil monarch. And who does this tyrant reign over? Well, all who are in Adam. That was all of us coming into this world, our starting position. He reigned over all of us. And he doesn't just reign, Paul says here in verse 21, but he reigns in death. He reigns in death. What does he mean by that? He means in a state of death. He means in, a, in the realm of death or in the land of death. You'll hear these phrases in Scripture used. Or in a kingdom of death. Back in 14, Paul said, verse 14, he said, death reigned. But here he says, sin reigned in death, in the state of death. It's an interesting distinction. Uh, the commentator William Hendrickson was helpful to me in this respect. On this passage, he said, quote, Sin and death are here personified, sin being, as it were, the sovereign, death his viceroy. Uh, I didn't know what a viceroy was. A viceroy is one who exercises on authority on behalf of a sovereign, someone who's superior to him. That's a viceroy. So you could think of it as a, the general of the army would be the sovereign and his Lieutenants would be the viceroys. Or you could say the emperor is the sovereign and his governors are the viceroys. The point is both reign. One just reigns on behalf of the other. I think that's what Paul meant when he said in 1 Corinthians 15 that the sting of sin, or excuse me, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. Sin is like a poisonous spider that stung Adam and injected its poisonous venom into the stream of, of humanity in Adam and so poisoned all of us so that we died. Sin reigned in death. And so we ask this question, well, what does it mean particularly that sin reigned in death? Practically, what does that mean? It means this, that our sin nature exercises an absolute sovereign authority over us. It rules and reigns to keep us in bondage in a state of spiritual death. Spiritual death. And we looked at several examples of spiritual death a few weeks back. And I think it might be helpful, just by way of quick refresher here, to uh, recenter our minds on this idea of spiritual death. Spiritual death means the reign of death, that everyone is under the control of Satan. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In other words, in his control, in his power. The reign of death also means that men are dead in trespasses and sins, as we see in Ephesians 2. 
And you he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Dead men walking. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. And dead in this way, that they constantly fulfill the lust of their own flesh. They are given over to the lust of their own evil hearts to do whatever they feel like. So, it is a control in the sway of Satan, the domain of Satan. It is a a deadness in trespasses and sins, and then it's also an unbelief in the gospel of Christ. An unbelief in the gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 and 4, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. There's the key. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Men in the reign of death, of sin and death, do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they don't see their need. They are blind. They are perishing. That is to say, they're in the process of being destroyed. And they don't recognize their imminent danger. That is what it means to be spiritually dead. And so this is a great power, is it not? This reign of sin and death. Jesus, when he began his Galilean ministry in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew quotes Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, in fact, and he says this, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Now, you might ask, Was Isaiah referring to a physical location there when he talks about uh, this particular region, shadow of death? Well, yes, he was talking about the the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the tribes of Israel. That was north in Israel, in Galilee of the Gentiles. But spiritually, he's describing something far more significant. He's describing those who were under the reign of sin and death. Those who are in the region and shadow of death. In other words, those whose minds were blinded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who didn't see their need. And Jesus was that promised light who came to them to dawn on them that they might see a great light. But until he dawns on us, brothers and sisters, this reign of death holds us. It holds us sovereignly, firmly, exercising an absolute authority over us, keeping us in that state. And so our sin nature keeps us in that spiritual death. And there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. That's the second thing. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves in that position. In our own strength, we have no ability to escape this reign of sin and death. The Scripture teaches that our nature is evil. The prophet Jeremiah put it this way, He said, can a leopard change his spots? Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? So can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, you can't do good. 
It's not in your nature to do good. Your nature is to do what is evil because of this original sin of Adam and inherited corruption. Scripture also says that even our best righteousness is really filthy rags in the mind of God. It's of no use. And if we turn to the law to try to achieve some kind of a righteousness, what happens then? Well, it only paints us into a corner because it only magnifies our own sinfulness. It doesn't offer us any help to uh, complete the law, to fulfill the law. No. It just points out that we can't. And so there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And what's worse is this. We don't even have a desire to rescue ourselves. No desire. Because again, we don't see the need. Luke chapter 11. Jesus speaks about the kingdom of Satan. And you remember, he says, the kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. As he's speaking in that analogy, he says this concerning the kingdom of Satan. Luke eleven twenty one. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. This strong man that Jesus refers to is none other than Satan himself. And his goods are all those who are in Adam, natural people. And in peace means that they are not fighting against Satan. They're not rallying to, to, to try to exit the kingdom. They're in peace. They're lulled really to sleep. They're drugged and intoxicated and have no desire to go anywhere because they're veiled and blinded and subdued. Loved ones, this is the real issue with the world that we live in. This has always been the issue ever since sin entered the world. We are not just sinners who commit sins from time to time and we need some help so that we stop sinning so much. No. We are under the reign of sin and death. We're held in bondage to it. We can't do anything but sin. That was exactly Luther's point when he wrote The Bondage of the Will. And people who were promoting free will were saying, well, I have free will. And he said, I grant you that you have free will to sin as much as you want. That's the only kind of will you have because your will fundamentally is held in bondage to sin. Because you are that one who is held in peace by the strong man armed, kept in his palace, subdued as a slave. Shouldn't this truth inform our evangelism? As we think about sharing the gospel with those who don't know the Lord, and even every interaction with those who oppose the truth of the word of God. My friends, people are slaves to the devil. They are uh, unable to see the truth. And unless God gives them the gift of repentance to know the truth, they will remain captives in the devil's kingdom, in his service, to do his will. That should cause us more than anything to feel a great compassion for the lost around us because we too were in that position, weren't we? They are not free. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, He who commits sin is the servant, the actually slave of sin. He who commits sin. and He, he didn't mean someone who commits any sin. What he meant was, he actually used the present active participle form of the word. He says, those who, whoever committing sin, in other words, as a practice, are slaves to sin. Those whose practice it is to commit sin are the slaves of sin. In other words, those who have a sin nature practice sin. 
People in this, the reign of sin and death believe that they really have a, a positive starting point, right? And that they sin, they make mistakes, and they fall into what is negative. But Scripture's teaching is completely the opposite. We are in the mire, in the muck all the time because of Adam's sin. That's how we start in this world. And all we can do is sin. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 3, when he was giving that long list of what it means to be under sin in chapter 3 verses 9 to 18, he said their throat is an open tomb. Everything that comes out of their mouth from God's perspective is a, an odor of death. It's reprehensible. Not because people uh, say things that are always bad from a human perspective. I mean, people say very nice things sometimes, don't they? But the problem is they don't say what they say from a heart of belief and a heart of faith. God looks upon the heart. The words just evidence what comes out of the heart. And the problem that God has with us is that our hearts are evil by nature, wicked. The world thinks that they're free and that we are in bondage to religion, but really the truth is the reverse is true. The evil one is behind this world system of slavery to sin. He's the prince of the power of the air who governs and rules the wicked. But as we learned last week, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Superabounded. And it superabounds to who? To his own, to, to his elect, to his beloved. For them, he brings in the law that their offenses would be amplified so that they feel that sense of trapping, that sense of desperation that would cause them to call out on the name of the Lord for salvation. That desperation is that importunate prayer that we often read in the Valley of Vision, which are so excellent. These are people who are awakened to the fact that they are in real trouble because the law has amplified their sin. They realize that they've willfully rebelled against God and that their soul is in danger. They realize that for the first time, and it causes them to call out like the psalmist did in our text this morning. Psalm 116, verse 3. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol, the grave, laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. There's the amplification of sin. There's the light that dawns on them. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Deliver my soul. We hear the same thing in Paul's own testimony of himself, don't we, in Romans chapter 7. He talks about how the commandment at one point in time came to him. And it, 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 realized, it helped him to realize that he was dead. In fact, he says, it's my sin that was slaying me through the commandment. Because I couldn't keep it. I, I realized I was, I was a coveter. I was a covetous man because the law showed that to me. And he cried, cried out and he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, right? That's grace. That's grace for, a God, for God to show us our true condition that would lead us to call out to him in desperation and for deliverance. Brothers and sisters, this is how we're freed from Slavery to sin. We were in bondage to the reign of sin and death. No ability to save ourselves, not even a desire or a care to deliver ourselves. But I want you to notice back in Romans chapter 5, verse 21, when Paul says, For as sin reigned in death, reigned, 
What tense is he using for that word reigned? It's past tense. Aorist tense. He says sin reigned. Not so that as sin reigns, present tense and death, that's not our condition anymore in Christ. He's saying this reign was past tense. Sin and death used to reign over you and me. What happened? Our deliverance has come. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign. You think back now to that example that Jesus gave of the strong man armed who is keeping his palace and his goods in peace. And he continues in that section and he says, but when a stronger than he comes upon him, who's him? The strong man armed. And overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. What is he saying? He is saying that a much stronger force than Satan must come in to overpower Satan. Who is that? Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He comes in, he overcomes Satan, he takes all his armor from him, and he divides his spoils. That's us, the captives. He sets us free. Those who are sitting in the shadow of death, the light dawns on us, doesn't it? Paul said it this way in Romans 5, verse 6, For when we were still without strength, in other words, powerless, no ability, no desire to be saved, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He did something for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When he went to the cross for us, he acted unilaterally for us. We were still in the prison, totally senseless of what's going on, of our true condition and of our deliverer, Jesus Christ. He did this work on his own. Loved ones, this idea that we choose Jesus, it's not biblical. The only way that we are choosing Jesus and embracing him and accepting him is if he first chooses us. He comes into that kingdom of Satan and breaks us free out of the prison. We acknowledge him then, don't we? But not before. Isaiah 61, verse 1. This is Isaiah speaking of Christ because Christ quotes this exact verse when he begins his Galilean ministry in the temple in Nazareth. Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. There it is. Christ, the stronger man who overcomes the strong man armed. See, when Christ rescues us, and here's the big idea I would like to leave with you for today. There is a transfer that takes place. This whole reign of grace involves a transfer from one kingdom to another. The kingdom of sin and death to the kingdom of grace and life. Listen to how Scripture describes this transfer. Here's how Paul puts it to the Colossians in one, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Our call to worship this morning. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins delivered us from the power of darkness 
into the kingdom of his son, the son of his love. Listen how Paul puts it to the Ephesians. Ephesians 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then to the Thessalonians, same idea. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief, referring to the final day when Christ is going to return. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. And then Peter, same idea. Different churches, different uh, apostles, but listen to the same idea of this transfer. Peter says this to the Christians dispersed throughout their regions. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, so in every single case, there is a transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the reign of sin and death to the reign of grace and life. Charles Wesley said it this way in the song that we sang a little while ago, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. He didn't stay in the prison, did he? He rose, went forth, and followed who? Christ, his deliverer, the stronger man armed. Brothers and sisters, when we are transferred, we're in a new domain. We're in a new kingdom entirely. That is such an important doctrinal truth to have your soul anchored to because it impacts the whole of your Christian life. When we are transferred, we are in a new kingdom. We are in what's called the reign of life. We're in the land of the living. We're no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. Slaves of the Lord himself. A slavery which is a joy because he is a good master. Not a cruel, harsh tyrant like sin and death are. Psalm 116 again, just referring back to this importunate cry for God to deliver. In Psalm 116, this man, he found trouble and sorrow and he pleaded with the Lord for deliverance. And then he finds his deliverance with the Lord and he expresses his love for the Lord. In fact, he opens the psalm this way. He says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. And do you know how he expresses his love to the Lord? Verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 116. O Lord, truly I am your servant. Bad translation. Slave is the word in the Hebrew. Eved. Eved. I am your slave. I am your son or the son of your maidservant, female slave. What's his reason? You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, and so it is with each one of us who have been set 
loose, free from the bondage and the prison cell of sin. We recognize, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the bondage that we were in. We recognize that we have a great need for deliverance that prompts us, urges us to call upon the name of the Lord, and then we see our dungeon previously pitch black, flamed with light. Who is that light that dawns on the coast of Zebulun and Naphtali? Jesus Christ. He is the light that dawns on us. He comes in. He flames our dungeon with His light. He removes our chains and we begin to follow Him. We leave the prison cell. That means that we're no longer governed by this principle of sin. We're no longer governed. He's no longer reigning on the throne of our lives, of our hearts. In fact, He has been deposed. He's been dethroned altogether. And there is now a new reigning principle, in fact, new reigning person in our hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of Christ. We are now governed by grace. This is the present tense. We are no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. We're governed by grace. And here's the practical implication of all this that I am leading up to. If this is true, that we have been delivered from that prison cell, we've gone out, we're no longer in that domain anymore, we're no longer in the domain of darkness, but in the domain of light, that means that we no longer practice sin as the pattern of our lives. We no longer practice sin as the pattern of our lives. See, grace, brothers and sisters, is given us for a very specific purpose. That purpose is to follow Christ, to leave the prison cell. Not to stay in the prison cell and languish in our sin. It is to walk in holiness, to walk in the light as he is in the light, to walk in truth. Not perfectly, but as the pattern of our lives, the new pattern of our lives because we're in a new kingdom And just as sin was personified as a tyrant, Paul does the same thing with grace, right? Does the same thing with grace. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is personified, and why? Because here's what Scripture teaches now about the control of our lives, about the domain that we live in. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 And this might seem a strange context at first, but bear with me. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So here's another contrast. Don't be drunk with wine. What is that about? That's about control. Don't be controlled by wine. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. That is the picture of the Christian life. We are no longer under the control, the influence, the dominion, and the sway of Satan or of the the lust of our own flesh. We are now under the control of the Spirit of God who is called the Spirit of grace in Hebrews chapter 10. Spirit of grace. See, people in the reign of sin are spiritually drunk. That's why Paul uses this analogy. Sin is an intoxicator. It's like the maniac of Gadara. You read about him. He's out of his mind, right? 
He doesn't have his clothes on. He's indwelt by a demon. And Jesus, after he restores the man, what happens? He's sitting clothed and in his right mind. That is a picture of us. Sometimes we have a hard time relating to some of these things in Scripture. Well, I'm not a demon-possessed person. Yes, you were. Sin is an intoxicator. You were just like that. I was just like that. Out of my mind, not able to think clearly. Jesus restores our ability to think clearly. We are now governed, controlled by the spirit of truth. He is our new governor and king. Old man's sin is gone. He's dethroned. We don't always live like he's dethroned, and we're going to talk a lot about that as we get into Romans chapter 6. But the truth of the fact is that he has been dethroned. You do not need to obey him or sit under him any longer if you are in Christ this morning. If you have the Spirit of God, you are controlled by the Spirit. And how are we controlled by the Spirit? Because we are filled with the Spirit daily as we are letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, right? We are saturating our minds, brothers and sisters, with the Word of Christ such that it controls us. We start to think God's thoughts after Him. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Let that sink in. Old things have passed away. They're gone. Behold, all things have become new. You're no longer in that dungeon of sin anymore. He's led you out. He's led me out. Peter says it this way. He says, we have become partakers of the divine nature through God's great and exceedingly precious promises that he's given us in his word. Become partakers of the divine nature. Why? Because God has implanted his very seed in us. A seed that abides, John says. You have the life of God in you. That's what makes you a Christian. Not just because you follow some precepts or principles in Scripture. God has invaded your life. He is now the controlling agent in your life and my life. So, we were the people with a sin nature living in the domain of darkness and the shadow of death with no ability or interest in rescuing ourselves. We are now the people who have been rescued, born again with a new nature, with the life of God abiding in us, who have been transferred into the kingdom and the domain of grace and life. There has been a transfer. So we, brothers and sisters, have an entirely new relationship to sin. Entirely new. What is that? Well, Paul says it in chapter 6. We're going to get to this, Lord willing, next week. He says we died to it. We died to sin. And you say, well, how could that be? Because I struggle so much with sin in my flesh. Here's the key. We don't practice sin any longer. We don't practice it. Yes, we sin, but our practice is now holiness, brothers and sisters. That is the desire of our heart and actually is the fruit of our lives. Not perfection, holiness, which means when we sin, what do we do? We confess our sin. We humble ourselves. We confess, we repent, we turn away from our sins, we turn away from ourselves, and we look to Christ in faith. That's the new pattern of the life of a Christian who is controlled by the Spirit of God. I want you to notice this next phrase that Paul uses in Romans 5.21. He says, even so grace might reign through righteousness. Paul doesn't use any words haphazardly. Through righteousness. Grace, 
loved ones, is never, ever separated from righteousness. This is something to take note of. (laughs) Grace and righteousness always go hand in hand. The psalmist, same psalmist in Psalm 116, verse 5, he says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. He is gracious and righteous. He never sets aside his righteousness in order to dispense his grace. If he were to just say, were to just say I'll forgive them. I'm just going to give my grace to this group of people. But nothing had ever been done to deal with their sin. Would he be righteous? Would he be a just judge? He would not. But, Paul, but God is a just judge. And in his brilliant mind, he has conceived a plan of salvation from eternity. In which he would be allowed to extend his own grace to a group of people, us. And at the same time, preserve the integrity of his own justice. You say, how does he do that? Because he took our sins and the punishment for our sins and he placed them on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he punished those sins fully so that we can be righteously forgiven, rightfully forgiven, and set free. He made a way to be both just by punishing our sin in Christ and the justifier extending his grace to us. He never sets his his justice aside to dispense his grace. And that is true all throughout the scripture. When Christ came to this earth, he lived without setting the law aside. He came not to set the law aside, but to fulfill the law. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. When Jesus justified us, he did it through the righteousness of the law, by keeping the law perfectly himself and by paying the penalty that the law prescribes for sin, which is death. He worked through the law by satisfying it fully. He doesn't set the law aside. Grace and righteousness go together. This grace, this reign of grace that we are experiencing is only through the righteousness of God, through the righteousness of Christ. That is true in our justification, and as you might guess, it's also true in our sanctification. In other words, grace has not given us that we might go on sinning. Grace has given us so that we would pursue holiness, righteousness, and truth. Lastly, I want you to take note of these words, this reign of grace that is through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To eternal life. Brothers and sisters, kingdoms in history have always risen and fallen, haven't they? God sets up kings, he establishes them, and he knows how to put them down. But there is one kingdom that is eternal that will reign forever. It has had no beginning. It will have no end. It is this reign of grace. Listen to Psalm 118, 19, and 20. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. The way that we enter into the kingdom of grace It's by entering the gates of righteousness. Who said that he was the door? 
through which if a man enter, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The Lord Jesus Christ is the door. He is the gate through which all the righteous must enter to eternal life. There is no other door. There is no other gate. He's the only one. This reign lasts forever. And this is something that I I want to encourage you to think about often. This grace that God has begun in our lives, He will bring to completion. What God begins in His grace, He always finishes in His grace. Paul told the Philippians this, that he was confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul, when he gives another analogy of um, the church as the bride of Christ, he says that the Lord is going to present this body, this bride to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Why? Because the Lord is perfecting all of his people, his bride. The grace that began in our lives, he will most certainly bring to completion. You think of, again, that Israel and their redemptive history, when God led them out of Egypt by the hand of Moses, he brought them through the Red Sea, he parted the the sea from one side to the other side and caused Israel to walk through on dry ground. That was the beginning of their deliverance, of their redemption. Great grace working on their behalf, right? He leads them through the wilderness, and because of their sin, they wander for 40 years. But finally, Joshua gets to the point where he's bringing them into the promised land. And what does he do? God repeats the same miracle again by dividing the waters of the Jordan. He stands them up like a heap, and he causes Israel to walk through on dry ground. It's the same grace, the same power that God is using to bring his people into the promised land for final deliverance. That initial grace will be a final grace also. What he has begun, he will complete through Jesus Christ in our lives. See, this is the key to salvation, brothers and sisters. If there is a, even a possibility that grace will not complete what it begins, in other words, that it somehow ultimately the responsibility rests on our shoulders, then assurance is never possible. It's not, because we are not faithful people. But God is faithful, and salvation is not only possible, but it's assured. Loved ones, let us never forget that apart from the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is no grace possible for us to conquer sin and death. There's no grace possible to raise us from the dead spiritually, no grace possible to bring us out of that prison of the dungeon that's, that's dark, enthroned by Satan. There's no possibility to even cause us to walk in holiness and newness of life by the Spirit of God. All that grace is through the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us. Jesus is the door. He is the gate of the Lord. He is the righteous one who ushers us into the presence of God, into this grace in which we stand. Stand firm. Never falling out. (laughs) Dr. Lawson this morning in our Sunday school referenced Charles Spurgeon and said, do you realize that Noah fell a lot inside of the ark, but he never once fell outside the ark? I thought that was pretty good. We can fall a lot, can't we? 
because we still sin. But ultimately, we're still standing in grace. We're in the ark, which is a type of Jesus Christ. We will never fall away from that ark because God himself has put us in and he's sealed the door. Hmm. Only two possible positions for everyone in this world. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either under sin or you're under grace. We all start in Adam, as we've said, but the question is, have you entered the reign of grace? Have you entered the reign of grace, brothers and sisters, this morning? Have you been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? And how would you know that? Just this, 1 John 3, 9 and 10, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. John is not talking about somebody who is sinless, who doesn't sin anymore, because in the chapter prior, he had just said, I write these things that you sin not. But when you sin, know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's talking about a practice of sin. He says in the very next verse, 1 John 3.10, In this the righteousness, excuse me, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. That is the acid test of whether you, in fact, have entered the reign of grace. Are you practicing righteousness or are you practicing sin? Friends, the issue is not whether you are a professing believer in Jesus Ultimately, the test is, have you seen the light flaming in your dungeon, seen that your chains have been broken off, and you have seen the Lord Jesus Christ so that you get up and you follow him out of the cell, out of the prison? Have you seen him? Have you followed him out? Are you now following him in righteousness and truth? If you still are one who practices sin, and I would say, and loves your sin, even though you know it's wrong, you love it because you continue to do it as a habit in your life. You're not free from the power of sin. It doesn't matter if you say that you're a believer in Christ. I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God this morning that you're still bound. You've never entered the reign of grace. But there is good news. There is always good news because we live in the day of grace. This day will not always abide. There is coming a day when grace will end. Grace is abundant, full, and free, and infinite for all who repent and trust in the gospel. But for those who are hard-hearted and refuse to believe, who love their sin more than they love the Lord, they are in great danger. And so the call of Scripture is always repent. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from yourself, from your ungodly ways of thinking. And hear the word of the Lord. In Zephaniah's day, he said it this way, Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, repent. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Hidden how? Hidden in Christ, who is the only refuge, the only gate through which we must enter for eternal life. Brothers and sisters, for those of you who are born again and in, in the reign of grace, we love this reign of grace. We love holiness, righteousness, and truth. 
our chief aim is to glorify God, isn't it? It is to please him who gave himself for us because he loved us with an everlasting love. Let us serve him with all of our being as long as we have breath. Let's pray. Father, what a joy to know that you have worked to save us when we ourselves um, were blind and helpless and had no interest because we couldn't see our true condition. Father, thank you for your great grace and mercy to us. Thank you, Father, for opening the gates of heaven for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for leading us out of that domain of darkness where we were oppressed by our own sin and oppressed by the devil himself. Father, we are now at liberty. We are free not to go on sinning, but to follow you, to live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and give you thanks and praise like this man did in Psalm 116, worshiping you, thanking you, because we know that we've been set free. You've loosed our bonds. We are now your slaves willingly. Oh, Lord, your burden is light, easy. We love being yoked to you and walking with you. Father, I pray for strength for your people, strength and faith in every situation that they encounter in life. Lord, in difficult trials where it seems the storms are overwhelming us and we are drowning, God, I pray for great grace and faith to trust you in those trials. Trials that you have yourself ordained, that we would be driven to that point of importunate prayer to call out on the name of the Lord. Father, we know that this is your plan, that you want us to call out on the name of the Lord and that you will answer us and we will glorify you by giving you thanks and praise from the bottom of our hearts. Father, you are worthy. You are a great Savior. We recognize that. We ask that you would help us, Lord, in our struggle in the flesh with sin. Lord, help us to starve the flesh and to truly walk as sons of light because we are no longer bound. Your word says it. Your spirit empowers it. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.